Lord God, we come to you, Lord God, in your scriptures. God, please reveal your glory, Lord Jesus. God, show, show your glory, Lord God. Please reveal, Lord God. God, as you've been doing to me throughout the week, God, show me your glory. Show me the beauty of who you are, God. Show the beauty of your kingdom, God. Show your majesty, God. I'm praying that you touch my brothers and sisters' eyes and minds today, Lord God. Let them see your truth, God. Let them see who they are in you, God. Let them find their identity in you, Lord God. You are salt and light, and we are in you, Lord God. Touch my brothers and sisters, Lord God. Outside of that, Lord, it's just going to be words I'm speaking, God. I'm just going to be reading words, Lord God. It is you that makes it come alive. It's your Holy Spirit, Lord God. So please, Lord, show, reveal, God. Bring joy. God, bring joy as we observe and see your majesty, your love, your mercy, and your scriptures, Lord God. Show your glory, Lord Jesus. And God, I want to lift up our little... Our, our little baby girl, Lexi, Lord God, who's yes. been sick, who's been down, Lord God, I pray that your healing hands and powers just come and grip her and make her new, God, bring that healing into her, Lord God. God, I pray that you provide peace to her mom who is watching her baby and wants to change it and feels like she can't do anything, Lord God, so I'm just praying that you just work in that circumstance there, work in that situation, bring glory, Lord, in this situation, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. So I pray that you paid attention to that song. Uh, that was very intentional. Well, we just did that. We're going to continue our study. I know it's been a little while. Pastor Brian's uh, been going for the past couple, I think, eight weeks. And so it's been a while since we've hit the Sermon on the Mount, so we're going to get back there. We've grown to the Beatitudes, and so now we're going to go to the next couple of verses which is Matthew 5, 13 through uh, 16. We're going to continue Jesus' discourse with his disciples and uh, those on the mountain with him. And so we're going to see what the Lord has to say today here on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And then he's asking for titles. Um, and I guess I'll title it, Who Are You? Who are you? Question. And the reason I say who are you, because right now in society, right now it seems like we're in a large identity crisis. People don't know who they are. And because we don't know who we are, we're going to different places. So some people right now, they're saying, okay, I don't know who I am. I, I think I'm Republican, or I think I'm Democrat, I think I'm liberal, I think I'm conservative. And so we have all of these different identities that we're trying to find, trying to find ourselves. And so we're looking somewhere we can just sit down and place ourselves. And so right now in society, what's going on in the political sphere, you have all of these political ideologies and beliefs that's kind of galvanizing groups and separating individuals because they're clinging to this identity of, like I say, conservative, Republican, liberal. People are, are clinging to their ethnicity and, and making it more than what it should be. We're clinging to all these other identities. So yes, we are multifaceted individuals. Yes, you have multifaceted uh, individualities. Yes, you are a mom. Yes, you are a husband. Yes, you are a wife. That's an identity, yes. Yes, you work wherever you work. That's an identity, yes. Those are important identities. But those are sub-identities. 
they're, they're believed, they're, they're beneath, they're in long term, they're junior to something else. You have a true identity. And Jesus Christ, in these verses that we're going to look at, is going to show us who we really are by association to, to Him. So let's go over the text today, Matthew 5, chapter 13 through 16. We're going to see who Jesus is that we are. We're going to see what His identity is in describing us. <coughs> And I'm coming off the NASB, so if you have a different version, you may read a little bit different. I hope we all get to the same place. Verse 13 reads, this is Jesus, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. 16. God, I don't have my money I just realized that right now. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let me get my mic. I totally forgot. So as we move from these Beatitudes down to verse 13 through 16, we see that Jesus begins to address his followers directly. If you look in the first Beatitudes, the first seven, he's using general terms. He'll say, you know, blessed are those who mourn or, or blessed are the meek or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or blessed are the merciful. He's using these general terms saying blessed are those who have this trait or characteristic. But as you move down to the eighth beatitude in verses 11 and 12 and down to 13, he starts to get a little bit more specific. If you look in 12 and he says, uh, matter of fact, 11, he says, blessed are you. Now he's getting more specific when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus goes from the general when describing these traits and, and he st- starts to kind of dial it down. And specifically, he's uh, addressing his disciples, those who are going to suffer persecution for his name. And he goes down in 13 and tells these people, the you in 11 and 12, you who are my disciples who are suffering persecution for my name, that you, verse 13, he says, are the salt of the earth. And then he tells them that you are in 14, the light of the world. You see, I was getting now more specific. He's telling them, you are this, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now, on first glance, when we look at this, that may not seem like Jesus is really giving them such a great compliment or, or saying anything positive at all. I mean, if I went up to my wife and I said, babe, you know what? The love you show me. It's like salt. It's better than salt. She'd be like, I don't think she'd be really impressed with that, right? I said, yes. She, you wouldn't be impressed with that, right? She wouldn't be impressed with her love being compared to sodium or, or salt, right? Because in our society, salt is not like valuable commodity like that. I mean, like when we go to the grocery store, for example, 
one of the first things we look at is the sodium count, right? Whoa, look at all that sodium in the Cheerios, you know? We look at sodium, and it's kind of like, matter of fact, salt is like a bad word in our society we're getting there, where salt is like, oh, no, how much salt does this have, right, Mom? (laughs) We're looking at salt, and so salt has become like this bad word. But for this first century, second century group, Salt was like the most expensive and most valuable commodity. If I was going to give some person, a person a compliment, guess what? There'd be like no greater compliment that I can give them to tell them that they are like salt. This was a huge, big deal in the first and second century. It was so big, matter of fact, that a Roman scholar, his name is Pliny the Elder. Some of you guys may know Pliny the Younger because he's he, he wrote letters to uh, the, the emperor about Christians. But Pliny the Elder, he had this to say about salt uh, during this time. And Pliny the Elder was a contemporary of Jesus. He lived during the time of Christ. And he wrote this book called Natural History. And it's what he had to say about salt. He says this, the higher enjoyments of life could not exist without the use of salt. Indeed, so highly necessary is this substance to mankind that the pleasures of the mind even can be expressed by no better term than the word salt. This is Pliny the Elder, first century Roman. Salt was a huge big deal. It was a, it was a major thing. See, because salt had tons of uses back then. You can use salt. One, remember, they didn't have refrigerators, right? They didn't have refrigerators. And so your meat, you would use salt as a preservative. So you would sprinkle it with salt and it would preserve your meat. So salt was used as a preservative. Salt was also used in religious services. You see the uh, Levitical priest um, in Leviticus 2.13, they would sprinkle salt on the grain offering. So it was used for that reason. Um, salt was used just like we use it today. It was used as a seasoning. It brought flavor. It made your food taste better. It gave it a good flavor taste. During this period, salt was also used as a fertilizer. It was used as a fertilizer to help crops grow, to help things grow. That was a use for salt. And salt was also used to solidify a covenant. You ever heard of a salt covenant? You can find that in Second uh, Chronicles thirteen five and Numbers eighteen nineteen. You hear you see the salt covenant because salt has such an enduring characteristics that that it it um, when people made a deal you would take this salt saying that I'm not going to change like this salt's not going to change basically so you, you would have this salt or you would give salt to signify or solidify this covenant that you made. So when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, you are the salt of the, the, the world or the land, he's saying something major. Even pagans would get that, oh, wow, he said something major by calling these people, these disciples of his salt. And here's the thing about using salt in his imagery or his metaphor. Salt was universal. See, salt was not just something that Jewish people used. But it was a commodity that, was, as we see with Pliny the Elder, it was a commodity that was used by all of the world, all of Roman society. Every person basically on the planet, hence, uh, used salt, hence salt of the world. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, like this salt, like the salt's influence on the world, 
That is who you are. There's no place in the world that you can't go and impact. You are the salt of the world. You bring this influence. See, everybody uses salt. And so Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of the earth. Now, there's different thoughts on which type of use was Jesus referring to. And there's great arguments for for all of them. Some say, well, he was saying that we are to be like preservers of society because we preserve morality. So we are to be salt in that way. Or, or others were saying, just like fertilizer, cultivating grows things. We are to cult- cultivate and grow people to God and to do good works. And um, some of the other ones, what are the other metaphors I've, I've seen for salt? Um, just like just an enduring characteristics, not changing it in our manner and who we are. See, the, there are all these different types of uses for salts and different arguments for all of them. And all of them are good because as Christians, we should be like all of them. We should kind of fertilize and cultivate growth. We should preserve morality. We should give this decaying world some flavor. And as we go and we pursue God's glory, see, we should do those things. But there's an underlying purpose in all of this that Jesus was getting at. There's an underlying purpose in why he's saying this salt or why he's giving these metaphors. And I just want to show you though. Let's just jump to verse 16. Here's the underlying purpose that we see in here. 16, he says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that you may, that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. See, what Jesus is doing here in these verses, he's using a common Hebraic teaching method of parallelism. Is where you where you use multiple ideas to bring home a certain point. So he says that you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth parallels would be in the light of the world. You see that salt of the earth, which is large light of the world, light, salt, world, earth. Same thing. See, he's using these different te- these different ideas to bring home a certain point. And from the scripture, we see that light parallel or corresponds in verse 16 with doing good works with the ultimate point of what glorifying God in heaven. So that is the ultimate point of us being salt and light in this world. It is to bring God glory. He's using a parallel. He's using these multiple examples to show you this is the point. This is why you are to be salt and light in this world. It is ultimately that God will be glorified. So he's telling these hearers of his, his disciples, the you in verse 11 and 12, that that is who you are. That is who we are. Salt of the earth, light of the world. And who do you think the best person or the best example of what it is to be salt and light in the world? Who do you think gave that best example? Who do you think was the most saltiest person? It would be Jesus Christ himself, right? John 17, 4, our first verse. I just want to show you this. John 17, 4. If you want to go there, turn with me. If not, I'll just read it for you. In John 17, 4, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. He's praying for the disciples. Look what he says here in John 17, 4. He says, praying to the Father, I glorified you. On earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So you see, Jesus right now, he's praying to the Father and he's saying, Father, I 
have glorified you on earth. I've accomplished the works that you have given me to do. So the question is, how did he glorify God? By accomplishing the works that the Father has given him to do. What are the works? The works are he demonstrated God's love to the sinner. The works are he demonstrated God's love to the blind. The works are he brought mercy and compassion to the prostitute. The works are he he raised those up who were dead. See, these are the works that he demonstrated. And as Jesus went out demonstrating and doing the works of the Father, what was the result of the people who encountered Jesus by this? They gave God glory. Do you see that? Anytime he would go, he would do a healing or he he would make somebody alive or he would change somebody. The end result was that the crowd would give God glory. The end result was that that person that was changed would begin to glorify God. An example of that is back in Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 8. If you want to go there. This is Jesus with the paralytic man. Look at what happens with the paralytic man after he's healed. Verse 8, it says, But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to man. So what happens? Jesus does the work that the Father has called him to do. And the result is that people give glory to God. Do you see what's happening here? That's what happens when he, when he's, he's obedient to the Father, when he's fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament saints, when he's uh, fulfilling Isaiah, when he says that I'm come to set the captives free and, and, and the blind that they may have sight. The result is that people give glory to God. They glorify God. So Jesus was the saltiest salt on earth. He modeled holiness. Jesus was the brightest light in the world. He did the works that brought glory to God. So when he tells his disciples here in Matthew that you are the salt of the earth, guess what? He is letting us share in his identity. Think about it. We're called Christians, meaning we're like many Christ. You get that, right? We're called Christians after Christ. We're sharing in his identity. See, when we walk in our society, we're like many Jesuses, so to speak. I know that sounds blasphemous for some people, but stay on here. We're not talking about that. But we're like many Jesuses walking with a power and authority wherever we go. An example of this is, is when Paul, I've mentioned this before in Ephesians 2, 17, he, he's, he's talking to the Ephesians who were pagan, and, he, and he's talking about how Christ came to, to them and preached peace. But Jesus Christ never came to the Ephesians and preached peace. It was the Apostle Paul that evangelized the Ephesians. But because Paul was walking in the power and spirit of Jesus, Paul being there evangelizing the Ephesians was the same as like Jesus being there. See, he shares in his identity. We share in his identity as we preach and share the gospel, as my brother was saying here. Another example of this is Acts 26. Turn there. I want to show you this one. Acts 26. Verse 14. We share in this identity. And 
this is the Apostle Paul. And he's walking, or he's going to, uh, he's on Damascus Road to persecute more Christians. So Acts 26, we have the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 14. I think I told you 16, but 14. This is the Apostle Paul. Look what happens here. It says, and when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the gold. You see what just happened here? Paul gets knocked to the ground. He hears a voice. And the voice is saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is, this is Christ saying this to Paul, right? But Jesus had already ascended, right? He was already at the right hand of the Father, right? He was no longer on this earth, but he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the church, believers, followers of Christ. But because the identity of the church and Christ is so intertwined, his persecution of the church is the same as persecution of Jesus. Do you see how our identities are so intertwined in the Christ? See, we, we share in his identity. When we preach his word and his power, we, we share in his identity when he chooses to do a healing through us if he may choose to. We share in his identity as salt and light because he is salt and light. He brings glory to God. We bring glory to God. See, we share in this identity. And that is what Jesus is doing with these disciples when he's calling them salt and light, salt of the earth, light of the world. You are sharing in my identity of who I am. This is who you are because of your connection or union with me. Salt and light. But here's an important point here back in Matthew, main text five. If you notice in your text, verse 13 and 14, Jesus does not tell these disciples of his that you will become salt and light. He doesn't say in the future you will be salt and light. But he tells them that they what? Are salt and light. He's using the Greek word este, just like Spanish. Esta means to be, means presently, right now existing. He's saying, you are right now, currently, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not a future thing. It's a current reality right now. This is who you are. But why, Jesus, how can you say that they are the light of the world? You are. See, it's because of his identity. It's because of our identity being wrapped up with him. And it's not based on who we are, but it's based on who he is. That is why he can say that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not based on me. It is based on him. See, this is the same um, in the Jewish system of discipleship. I told this before. We say disciple. They say Talmud. A Talmud would follow his rabbi, his teacher. And the Talmud, the reason that he would follow his teacher or his rabbi is so that his rabbi's interpretation of scripture would now be his interpretation of scripture. And his rabbi walk of life, his holiness would now be his walk of life. The Talmud was going to lose his identity so that he can be just like his rabbi, his teacher. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here. Because we choose to follow Jesus as his disciple, he wipes out our old identity and gives us a new identity. And this identity is that we are now salt and light as he is. See, he takes us out. He takes the old person out and gives us a new identity of salt and light. And he's calling these disciples salt and light. And guess what? They have yet to suffer for his name. They have yet to do anything great for his name. This is early on. They haven't done anything special. But yet Jesus is identifying them with himself by calling them salt and light as he is. Why? Because their identity, again, is not based on who they are. But it's based on who he is. Your identity is not based in who you are. It is not based on your ethnicity. It is not based on your political persuasion. It is not based on anything. It is based on Jesus Christ. He gives you your identity. You are like him. And I'm saying this because I'm seeing other Christians that are going in the way of the world. The world is so confused right now with all this political stuff. And they're choosing sides with Republican and Democrat and liberal conservative. When believers know that's not our identity in the first place. We're, we're, we're salt and light. We're, we're followers of Jesus Christ. We're like him. And here's a a profound thing that the Lord knocked me off my socks with as I was studying this text. One of the most glorious things about what Jesus is saying here in verse 13 to 16 is this. The people that are hearing Jesus, these disciples of his that he's speaking to, the people that are hearing Jesus say that you are salt of the earth and light of the world. Guess what? These people may have been drunk the night before. These people may have been fornicators the night before. These people may have been addicts the night before. These people may have been slaves to sin the night before. But because of Jesus, because of this encounter with Christ, but because of their union with him, because of them hearing the gospel, they have now received a new identity. Do you see that it's because of the person, the, the, the drunkard could have been drunk last night and he walks into the church and he hears the gospel and he encounters Christ and Christ gives him a new identity. He is no longer that old person. He is now sought in light as Christ is. Do, do you see the grace and glory of this? If you think this is a joke, look at your own life. You were not always sought in light. Who were you before you encountered Christ? You were not this person. You were doing other things. You were going about your own ways, but you came and you encountered Christ. And as you encountered Christ, he changed you and gave you a new identity in an instant. And that's what we're seeing here with the glory of God. He's telling us to disciples who have not been proven that because of your union to me, because you are following me, because you are believing in me, You are not that old person that you used to be. I don't care what identity you had. You are now salt and light. You are now set to influence this world. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. Salt and light. 
When Jesus says these words here in verse 13 through 16, I could picture him thinking about Paul who would come years later down the line in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says, therefore, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's given us a precursor to what Paul is going to say here. Identity found in Christ. Just look at the Apostle Paul himself in First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says that this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, foremost. I'm the greatest. Paul goes from chief of sinner on a road to Damascus to salt and light. He loses his old identity and finds a new one in Christ. See the grace and mercy of God here. See, when Jesus pronounces his disciples as salt and light, he's essentially announcing them as clean because of their association to him. He's saying that you're set apart now as you follow me. You're set apart unto God. See, some of you are saying, why do you say that? Because in the scriptures, guess what? Things like light, it's always contrasted with darkness. And darkness represents wickedness, and light represents holiness and righteousness. And so Jesus calls them the light of the world. So he's pronouncing them a new identity. He's saying that you are, because of your association to me, you are now clean, you are set apart. You are set enough, you are set apart for holiness. But you understand what I'm saying here? Jesus is making this pronouncement with his mouth. He's saying this. See, there is no way for us to become salt and light, clean or holy outside of an action of God. You see how he's calling them salt and light? It's not because of anything that they've done, but it's based on who he is and what he has done or what he is doing. That is the only way that anybody can get this title. That's the way that, that's the only way that anybody can be clean and set apart in salt and light. It is by an action of God. When I think about this, I'm reminded of Isaiah 6. Matter of fact, yeah, let's go there. Let's read that. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Just want to show you how. The man gets a new identity in an instant. Isaiah 6. I'm going to look at verse 5. This is Isaiah. He has this glorious picture of glory of God, so to speak. He gets a vision. Theophany, I don't know what you want to call it. Look what he says here in verse 5 when he sees where he's at and what he's looking at. Isaiah says this, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah realizes where he's at. He sees God's holiness. And when he sees God's holiness, he recognizes his filthiness, his rags, who he really is. So Isaiah has a proper perspective on his own life, which like we should when he's in a point in a place of glory. And then we go down to verse six. 
after Isaiah realizes who he is, he has a clear perspective on himself. He says, look what happens in verse six. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. Look at seven. Look at glory here. Look at mercy undeserved. He says, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. What happened? That coal has been in the presence of God and just one touch, one touch. Isaiah just said, I was, I was unclean. I was filthy. I was dirty. But in an instant, in a moment, as soon as that coal touches his mouth, he says, you are no longer unclean. Isaiah did not work for this. There was no good works that Isaiah did to gain that. He didn't go do anything. He didn't go feed starving kids in Africa. He didn't go open all the doors for the, for the elderly people. He didn't do anything. It was just by God's grace and mercy that he becomes clean in an instant it's the only way he makes them new clean different in an instant it's god's work that is how we're clean it's god's action just like jesus moves and says you are the salt of the world you are light that is god's moving it is his pronouncement he gives us our identity he makes us clean makes us new it's back to our our main text, 13 to 16 here. So what we've looked at so far and just examined these texts, we've seen how the grace and mercy of the Lord comes upon the sinner, the sinner who was in darkness. The sinner who was consumed by his sin is now called and told that he is now sought in light. Because of his association, his following of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But we also see that when Jesus makes his statement to his disciples, that they're sought in light, he's also pushing the disciples towards the end goal, which is to glorify God. Let me put it in another way. By Jesus giving the disciples this identity, He is indirectly or directly, however you want to look at it, affecting the way that they live their lives. By Jesus giving the disciples this identity, he is directly or indirectly affecting the way that they live their lives. See, a person's actions are affected by who they believe themselves to be. So, for example, let's take a kid. Let's take a child, a first grader, second grader, third grader, whatever. If that first, second, third grader believes that he is stupid, I know that's the wrong word. Our kids are not here. We tell them don't say that word. Oh, okay. We don't, we don't say the S word. But if he believes that he's not smart, how about that? Euphemism. If he believes that he's not smart, guess what? If he takes on that identity, it's done. You can give him all the homework you want. I'm not doing it. Why? I'm not smart. I'm going to just act up. I'm mad crazy. Why? Because I've just taken on this identity. I believe that I'm not smart. So guess what? Why even try? That's what happens. My wife, I'm sure she could tell you. Once they take on this identity, you believe I'm not smart. I'm dumb. I can't do it. It's like I've taken on this. So why even try? Or you can go with adults. You can get a person who believes that they are nothing. Guess what? Because they believe that they are nothing and have no value, they will do actions that align with that thinking. Promiscuity, drug use, 
We see people selling their bodies. Why? Because they are determined in themselves that they're no value, that they are nobody. See, it is that identity that is, see, identity is so important. It really affects our actions and, and why we do certain things. And that's why Jesus here is giving these disciples this identity that you are salt and light. It's see, we wonder why people in the world do so many things that we just we just don't get. They don't know God. They don't know whose image that they're made in. So what happens? They go and they get their identity from the culture. They go and get their identity from their environment or society. Why? Because they don't know who they are. They don't know God. So they go and they get an identity from society. And we see what happens. So that's why Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Like salt, you must influence disciples. Like salt, you must go into the cultures, in the communities, in the environments, and show another way, and, and show another identity, and show a true image. That is what it means to be salt and light. Modeling holiness, going and doing these deeds that bring glory to God. We're showing that it's not this the way that you're doing. No, it's not the way. We must go in and influence See, we don't want to be sought without contact. Salt without contact is, if this was a jar of, of salt, as long as it stays in this cup or a jar, it has no effect, right? It's without contact. But it has its effect when you get whatever and you begin to pour it on there. That's why as Christians, we can't be sought without contact. We can't just be in holy little huddles and not go in and influence the world. We have to be sought with contact. We can't say the way in this jar. But if you're like me, a person that with doubts and insecurities, you find what Jesus is saying here in verse 13, that I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You find it hard to believe from time to time. Jesus, me? I, I, I'm the light of the, the world. I'm the salt of the earth. Jesus, do you know what I was just thinking five minutes ago? Jesus, did you see my actions? Did you just see how I, I talked to my wife? Jesus, did you just see what I did to my kids? And you said that I am the light of the world. I am the salt of the earth. Jesus, did you just see what I was watching or what I was thinking? We have these insecurities because we're, we're these fallen creatures. And so when Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, it's, it's, it's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to take in. And so as I, as I was pondering on this, uh, preparing for this, I'm, I'm sitting on my couch and, and I, and I began to think back on Friday, we had an event at the school, my children's school. And, um, I'm at this event, this harvest festival, and there's tons of people there. And I'm like, I didn't feel like I was the salt of the earth there. I didn't feel like I was the light of the earth, the, the world there. I felt like I was just one of many. I didn't see anything different about me being there versus anybody else being there. But then the Lord began to speak to my heart and bring this to my mind that there are people at that school. They know me and my wife are uh, committed followers of Jesus Christ. They know that about us a lot from the staff to different people. And so when we walked through that school as a family, 
They're seeing what a godly Christian family looks like. They're seeing me walk with my wife. They're seeing me with my kids, and they know who we represent. See, we're having an influence even when we don't feel like we're being salt and light, and we're having an influence is the point I'm getting at. And and the other thing that the Lord brought to my mind concerning that is John 3.20 and 2 Corinthians 2.16. Look at John 3.20. Go there with me. John 3.20. In John 3.20, Jesus says this here. He says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. In context, the light is Jesus. But remember, as he just said, we are the light of the world. We share in his identity. So you got to understand that as light, some people, they see your light. And guess what? Because you are light, as Jesus said, they will not even come around you. And it'll be at times where you feel like, man, am I even having an impact here? But you are having an influence. It's just that darkness doesn't always want to be around light because we expose darkness as deeds. And so it feels like, man, I'm not seeing any change come around here. But we are having an influence no matter what if we are truly shining for Christ. We see what's happening here. Darkness doesn't like light. It doesn't want to come around it. Also in 2 Corinthians 2.16, go with me there. Second Corinthians two sixteen. I'm gonna start at fifteen, matter of fact. Look what the Lord says. This is not the Lord, I'm sorry, this is the Apostle Paul. Look what he says here in verse fifteen, second Corinthians two fifteen. He says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the one, those I'm going to say, to the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. You see what the apostle is saying here, right? He's saying you, as a follower, you have the fragrance of Christ on you. Like an oil. They had oils back in those days. And he's saying, you have the fragrance of Christ on you. And to another believer, boy, you smell good. When I see other believers doing the work of God, I get excited. I'm like, that's it. Yes. Eduardo comes and tell us what he's doing out there in the streets. Yes, that's the fragrance of Christ. But to those unbelievers, you stink. You have the fragrance of death. You make people think about judgment. You make people think about they know they shouldn't be doing these things. And guess what? People don't want to be around bad aromas. And so you actually dispel people sometimes in our, in our pursuit of righteousness. See, you're, you're having an influence whether you see it or not. That's the point I want you to see. Yes, there's going to be times where people are going to come to the light and they'll be changed and transformed by our witness, by our word. And there's other times where people are just going to stay away because they know who you represent. You are, you bring conviction just by your existence, just by you being light, just by you being salt of the earth. You bring conviction. 
And you can feel like, man, am I having an influence here? Am I doing anything? If you're represent, if you're being salty as salt should be, if you're being light, then yes, you are having an influence, whether you're seeing it necessarily with your eyes or whatever. God is still working here. And this brings us to the B portion of these verses. Let's get back to our main text. I was in a different place. Yeah. There we go. Come on, Matthew 5. Where you at? There we go. So this brings us back to the B portion of our, our salt and light imagery, our, our metaphor. When he says that you are the salt of the earth, and here's the paradox with God, he says this is who you are, but then he also gives us this action that we must do and take. He says, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then he says, you are the light of the world. But then in 15, he says now that nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on the lampstand so that it can give light unto all those who are in the house. So Jesus is saying, if you are salt, your responsibility is to be salty. If you are light, then your responsibility is to shine. Yes, this is who you are. Yes, I'm pronouncing this is who you are, but there's some volition here. You, you have to actually do something. You, you can't just be salt without contact. You can't just be a light with a, with put in a, in a box, as he says. See, there are so many people claiming to be Christian, but there is no salt within them. There is no holiness. There's no righteous living. There's no glorifying God. See, they have lost their saltiness. And Jesus says, a salt with no saltiness is worthless. He said, he said, it's worthless. You might as well just throw it out. Matter of fact, I want to show you what he says about a salt that lost its flavor in Luke 14. Go to Luke 14. Look what he says here. Luke 14, verse 34 to 35. Look what Jesus says about salt that has lost its useless, its useless, or its use, its taste. He says this in 34 to 35. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, With what will it be seasoned? 35, he says, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he says ears to hear, he's saying who, he who has ears to hear and obey. That's just a, um, a Hebraic idiom for, uh, following hear and obey. So he who has ears to hear and obey, let him hear and obey what he's saying here. So Jesus is saying in this verse, remember salt is like a fertilizer, right? I mean, that's one of the uses, but he's saying a salt that has lost its saltiness or effectiveness. He's saying, you're not even good enough to be fertilizer. A person that's claimed to be Christian, but has no salt in them. He said, I'm not even to throw you in my dirt to bring up my vegetables, so to speak. He said, it, it's pointless. And then he moves over. And remember how salt also acts as a preservative because when, during this time, you would have um, farmers and they would have excess manure, right? 
And you know, you need manure to help your, your crops grow. And so they would pile salt on this excess manure to keep it fresh, so to speak. So you can, can, uh, so that you can continue to use it. But Jesus is saying here that a saltless person, it's not even worth throwing on my pile of poop. He's saying, I was listening to a Francis Chan sermon. He's saying that Jesus is saying, you mess up poop. A saltless Christian. It's worthless, he's saying here. It should be thrown out. You can't even use it in fertilizer. You can't even use it in poop. See, salt and light, you're supposed to be a distinctive. You're supposed to bring something to the world. You're supposed to bring influence. But if you're not going to be salty, he's saying, what is the point? So people walk around with the Christian name, but if you're not being salty, we're deceiving ourselves, my brothers and sisters. You are called, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are called to be salty. This is what Jesus basically was saying in Mark 9.50. Last verse I want to give you here. Go to Mark 9.50. Mark 9.50. In Mark 9, 50 here, let's read verse 15. I'll give you the context. I'll start in 49. Jesus says this. He's with the disciples. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? So he tells the disciples, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have salt, disciples, within yourself and be at peace with one another. Now, the context of this is the disciples, before Jesus made this statement, the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. First of all, isn't that just idiotic? The disciples are here with the Son of Man and they're over here arguing with one another who is going to be the greatest. When, when I read it, I just smile and laugh because that shows you that God could use anybody. Look at these doofuses here. They're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And so Jesus hears their argument, their, their arguments. And he tells them the one who's going to be the greatest in verse 35. It's the one who's going to be a servant first. So if you want to know who's going to be the greatest, the greatest disciple, that is. It's the one who's going to be a servant first. But then he goes down and shows us in 42, uh, in verse 42 to 47 that a great disciple is also going to be a person who is extreme or goes to extreme measures to cut off sin. They may cause himself to stumble or they may cause someone else to stumble. So to be salty, what Jesus is showing us is that it, it means having peace with one another. And making sure that we don't put stumbling blocks in our own life and in those in front of others that cause them to disbelieve in Jesus. That's what stumble means in the scriptures. When you see stumbles, stumble in unbelief. And so we're saying, you don't want to cause yourself to stumble by being caught up in sin. And you don't want to cause anybody else to be caught up in sin. So you go and be salty and have peace with one another. Now you're being a disciple. So we see that being salty has to do with also slaying sin. It has to do with holiness and being righteous. And it also has to do with us having peace with one another. 
And if you notice, he says, have peace with one another. Peace is one of the Beatitudes that we first studied. Do you get that? So this shows us that what Jesus was doing when he started off his sermon with the Beatitudes, that it was more strategic. He's setting up the standards for what it means to be salty. And then he tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But the saltiness begins with carrying out the traits of the Beatitudes that he first started his sermon off with in the first place. Do you see the genius of our Lord? To be salty or to begin this life of saltiness in, it's going to begin with us taking on the traits and characteristics of the Beatitudes. That is the only way that you're going to fulfill this life in following Jesus. Is that you take on all those traits that we looked at, poor in spirit, meekness, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. That is the only way that you're actually going to be able to fulfill the commandments that Jesus gives in the rest of this sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. See, even in, matter of fact, in, in chapter six of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells these same disciples, the same group to give to the poor. But in order for us to give to the poor in the commandment or in the way that Christ tells us, guess what? You're going to need beatitude number one, being poor in spirit. You're going to need beatitude number three. Um, I'm sorry, uh, number three, meekness. And you're going to need beatitude number five, merciful. See, in order to fulfill any of this Christian life, this Christian walk, you're going to need these beatitudes because these beatitudes help you to become a salty, light shining, light bright Christian. Bringing glory to God. So as we look at our our text again, we see that we have this identity in Jesus. You are sought in light. It is not based on who you are. It is based on who he is. You have a responsibility because of your association with Jesus Christ to go into the world and to influence to the glory of God. You are not to be sought without contact. You are not to stay huddled, but you are to go out and be effective, to be a preservative of holiness and righteousness, to go and bring flavor to this corrupt world, to show the world that our God is true and alive. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you are so awesome and amazing. Thank you for allowing us to share in your identity of being sought and light in this world. God, you are so worthy, Lord Jesus. You've transformed our mind and our heart to a heart that wants to pursue you and pursue the things that bring you glory. God, I pray that you touch my brothers and sisters today. That they remember who they are in the midst of this world, in the midst of trials. That they remember that they are sought in light because of their association to you. That you have given them a new identity. And that identity is to bring you glory to their life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.